0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.
1: Jack Miller was a suspected bank robber and moonshiner in Depression-era Arkansas. Federal authorities from the Department of the Treasury were watching him and hoping to catch his moonshine operation, and they arrested him on April 18, 1938. But unfortunately for them, they found that his still was not functional. The boiler had long ago been removed and embarrassed for having wasted a day on a stakeout, they looked for something else to charge Miller with. The Treasury found an 18-inch shotgun sawed off in his car. Under an act recently passed by Congress, they charged Miller for not paying taxes on the shotgun. The problem the U.S. Treasury would run into originated in a series of bills that James Madison sent through the House of Representatives in 1789, one of which read, that people have a right to bear arms. The National Firearms Act of 1934 had been passed in the wake of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. It was an attempt to limit gangster activity by imposing stiff taxes on the type of weapons that gangsters often used. Shotguns were one of them. Jack Miller was charged under a provision that required a fee for the shotgun when it was brought across state lines, a fee that was more, in most cases, than the shotgun itself. A federal judge ruled that the NFA, the National Firearms Act, was unconstitutional, and a delighted Jack Miller absconded not to be seen again. Meanwhile, the U.S. Solicitor General, on behalf of the United States government, asked the Supreme Court to hear the case. And in 1939, in Miller v. the United States, a unanimous court found that a shotgun was not protected under the Second Amendment, because it didn't match the language of the Second Amendment. The justice is focused not on the part of the Second Amendment that gives a citizen a right to bear arms, but on the other part of the amendment, the sometimes forgotten language, that a well-regulated militia is necessary for the United States. This sought-off shotgun that Miller used, they argued, cannot be part of a militia's outfit. Though even that's controversial, some gun advocates argued that Confederates used shotguns and they were used for trench warfare in World War I which would have been the war immediately preceding this decision. Miller versus the United States is the last ruling from the highest court in the land on the Second Amendment. Amazingly, an issue that's been so contentious in public debate and politics has not been touched much by the Supreme Court. But now a security guard from Washington, D.C., named Dick Heller, backed up by a libertarian group, not incidentally, by the NRA or the Bush administration, is suing the District of Columbia to have the right to carry a gun. I want to protect myself from violent criminals, Heller says, and the Constitution says I have a right to do so by keeping a gun at my home. But does it? By June, we will hear the answer from the highest court in the land, the interpretation of this clause that was not in the original Constitution, created in that chamber in 1787, but developed out of the ratification process in Massachusetts, in Virginia, as well as New Hampshire. These confusing words. A well-regulated militia, being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed upon. If the Constitution's short and confusing and made to be open to interpretation, this may be part of its purpose. It had to be sold to the states, and part of its selling point was its very conciseness. The more words that were in it, the more words that could be objected to. But while this worked to get the document ratified, it also left a lot open to multiple interpretations. And that's kept the highest court in the land busy throughout American history. But at first glance, this wouldn't appear to be much of an issue. One might tend to say it's simple enough. Congress and the President cannot infringe upon the right of the people to bear arms. You cannot make laws that take away guns from citizens, period. But wait, it says that the reason for this right is to have a militia. So is the right to bear arms only for members of the National Guard? It says keep and bear arms. Keep is not confusing. Americans get to keep their guns at home. It's not meant for a central arms location. It's not meant for arms to be issued by the president, by the government, even the state governments. Citizens get to keep guns. This is the crux of the individual rights argument that the Second Amendment gives everyone an individual right to carry gun. But then we get back to the well-regulated militia. And that would tend to imply a collective right, that only in the collective, only as part of a militia, the citizens have a right to carry guns. Because the Second Amendment would seem to say that you can't just have a bunch of people having guns. They have to be a well-regulated militia, subject to rules. In the early Pennsylvania colony, militias were formed To deal with hostile Indians. By the time that Ben Franklin was a rising star in Philadelphia, a lot of the Indian problem, at least the immediate problem, had been solved. Indians had been pacified. But there was a problem with a group of white people, some Scots-Irish from near Dauphin County, Pennsylvania. Because they met near Pax Church, they were known as the Paxton Boys. They began raiding Indians who were friendly to the Philadelphia colony and causing a lot of trouble. A militia unit was formed in Philadelphia and Ben Franklin was one of the leaders of it. And he went out and confronted these men and after talking to them, came to an agreement. Franklin used words to subdue the Paxton boys. But he was armed and so were the members of his militia. Guns were a part of life in the colonies. Not an unusual part. Hunting and battles with Indians made guns important. By the time the Constitution was written, many Americans had them. Estimates are hard to come by. Probate wills show some evidence of gun ownership. It was most likely more than the 25% of Americans that own guns today. After the death of his brother Lawrence, George Washington became a major of the Virginia militia and participated in the early part of the French and Indian War. In fact, he would play a very significant role in starting that war. The Virginia militia was well-drilled and well-armed, but when push came to shove, it was ordered around by the governor or added to British forces and commanded by British generals. In fact, militias were a part of British life, which was, of course, the genesis of American culture. We could go back to 901 A.D., when King Alfred in England required his subjects to be armed and all to be part of the army, at first nobles and then serfs. King Henry, in 1181, decreed that all serfs had to join the militia and provide themselves with a shield and spear. Gradually, in British culture, the militia unit's moved from being under the king's control to not always being so. In Massachusetts, the militia was well established. Acts as early as 1645 told towns to have men ready at a half hour's notice. These were the well-trained and skilled minute men. By the time of the Revolution, there were 14,000 men in 47 regiments in the Massachusetts area. These were the men who would defend Lexington and Concord. So militias were a big part of American life, and one could see that the authors of any amendment to the Constitution would want to keep them going. In fact, the Second Amendment specifically uses the term militia instead of troops. It's not referring to a professional army under the control of the national government. Congress did not fund an army in early America. And while the Constitution puts the army in the control of the President, it does not call for an army to be established unless Congress does, which, up until about the War of the 1812, it really did not. But the lack of a professional national army didn't mean that early Americans weren't interested in security. They were very interested in security, and these militia units were the manifestation of that. The pervasiveness of militia and militia membership would really argue for a collective rights interpretation of the Second Amendment. If there were these bodies that were run like armies, that could be under circumstances at the behest of the governor, and sometimes under British and then state control, isn't it true that the Second Amendment was just for the purpose of keeping these sort of early National Guard units active? Was it really saying that each state can have its army New Jersey, New York, you can have militias, and this new national government led by a president cannot take them away from you. But in other amendments of the Constitution, the word state is used when the authors mean the states. And in the Second Amendment, the word that's used is the people. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed upon. The authors knew when they were talking about states and knew when they were talking about people. Besides, the Bill of Rights is, in essence, a document of individual rights. That was the whole point. And the objectives and the objections of many of the states in ratifying the Constitution were only soothed by the presentation of a series of bills of individual rights. The Constitutional Convention didn't address guns, nor any individual rights in their document. Mechanisms of power, they felt, not a silly statement of rights, would prevent individuals from tyranny. But in some state constitutions, Pennsylvania's for instance, as early as 1776, had a provision allowing people to bear arms. James Madison and other supporters of the Constitution quickly saw during the ratification battle that the Constitution's prospects were dim unless they deal with the major objection, the lack of a statement of individual rights in the new document. Madison promised the Virginia Ratification Convention that he would introduce such a Bill of Rights if the Constitution passed and he kept his word as a congressman. In his sales pitch for the Constitution, Madison noticed the presence of guns in the hands of citizens already in America as a reason that people could feel comfortable accepting a new national government. He noted that the people were armed, and that is an advantage over tyranny in America as opposed to other countries. Madison would go on to say that the militia units in America could easily take any professional national army. Noah Webster, who in his pre-dictionary days was an advocate of the Constitution and strong federal government, argued the same. Don't worry, he said. A supreme power cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword when the people are armed. On the other side of the constitutional battle, Patrick Henry, who was against ratification, worried about a small standing army for the national government. There was talk that George Washington would form a small standing army under Colonel von Steuben, who had trained troops during the Revolutionary War. Henry made it clear that the militia should not be some small group of people, The militia is all the people. All men should be armed. So did the federal farmer, the letter writer who spoke anonymously against the Constitution, though it was probably Richard Henry Lee. The federal farmer wrote, A selective militia is to be avoided. So both sides, the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist, agreed that it was a good thing that Americans individually had guns. At the same time, there is evidence of a concern over everyone having guns in early colonial and post revolutionary America. Early colonial laws in Maryland, for instance, forbid Catholics, immigrants, and blacks from owning weapons. And elites in America expressed concern over groups like the Paxton Boys, the Regulators of North Carolina, Shays Rebellion. While they wanted to keep the good militias, there also seems to be a concern about these groups. In fact, the concern over Shays' Rebellion, for instance, was one of the very reasons for a constitution in the first place. Perhaps there is some clues, but what was more important for them? Let's look at the actual language that Madison submitted to Congress in June of 1789, which is not exactly the Second Amendment we know today. Here it reads, that the right of the people to bear arms shall not be infringed. A well-armed and well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country. So that's the House version. It reads a lot like the Second Amendment, but it says well-armed, but emphasizes well-regulate as a counterpunch to the well-armed. It's almost like with rights come responsibilities. But Madison's version then went to a House committee and came out like this. A well-regulated militia, comprised of the body of the people, being the best security of a free state, The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So now there's something new. It's a clarification that indeed the Second Amendment speaks to the right of the body of the people. Everyone can have guns. And they added the word keep, so they get to keep them at home. That was the House committee version. But then, as in now, how a bill becomes a law is that the House and the Senate get together in conference and hammer out differences. And the Senate version clipped the language, the body of the people. And those elitist senators gave us the version that we have today. So we go back and forth. Is it only for well-regulated militias that individuals can have guns? We can get a 19th century mindset and interpretation. The roots of a nugget of understanding may be found in the most blatantly racist of Supreme Court decisions. In the Dred Scott decision. This decision uh, had nothing to do with guns, but was whether about whether or not a slave can be a citizen. In Judge Roger Taney's infamous court decision, he said that Dred Scott could not be a citizen because, the judge said, he could then own property, have free speech, or carry a gun. Taney, in this decision, which was overturned later by the Supreme Court, but in this decision it shines a light on the mindset of what individual citizens' rights were. And Taney clearly viewed owning a gun as one of these individual rights of a citizen. If we made Dred Scott a citizen, he could own a gun. This contributes to a point often made by gun advocates that one of the reasons there isn't clear Supreme Court language on whether the Second Amendment has an individual right or not is that it was just simply assumed. Guns were so much a part of everyday life that There's no reason to have a decision on it. It was not an issue. Indeed, the gun control laws that existed in the 19th century had prejudice and not arms safety behind them. Maryland had prevented blacks and Catholic immigrants from owning guns, and Louisiana prevented blacks, many of whom who had recently served in the Civil War, from owning guns. In the case of Kruikshank v. United States, Uh, The Supreme Court refused to interfere when Louisiana was taking guns away from black former soldiers. The Supreme Court in its reasoning argued that although there was a federal Second Amendment right to carry a gun, it did not extend to the states, and they ruled against these former soldiers. But in doing so, they did establish that there was an individual right to own guns. It was just a federal-state issue. Even Miller v. The United States as much as the justices argued that the shotgun was, could be regulated because it did not was not part of a militia unit's weaponry, did imply an individual right to carry, as the Supreme Court could have refused to hear Jack Miller's case if he had no standing, if he had no individual right that would have been violated. Want to learn how you can make smarter
0: decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
1: My own view is that the Founding Fathers said exactly what they wanted to say. A collective right and an individual right. A well-regulated militia being necessary, people can keep and bear arms. A collective right and an individual right. There's not one Founder's opinion. Everything written in the documents and the amendments that would follow was a series of compromises. The anti-Feds, like Patrick Henry, wanted everyone armed, as much arms as possible, to warn off the chance of tyranny. The Feds used the presence of so many guns to help limit the objections to the Constitution and make it seem like it wasn't such a radical change and to comfort critics. But clearly, they, with so many chances to change the language, also kept the language about a well-regulated militia attached to the Second Amendment. And I note the little change in the omission of the body of the people between the House Committee version and the Senate version of the Second Amendment, which is the version we have today. This change was made from the most elite members of society, the Federalists in the Senate, which indicates a desire to limit folks like the Paxton Boys and and those types. Well-regulated militia was the goal not just anybody. That's clear. That's the bill we have. But it's also clear that keep and bear means keep and bear. So the founders wanted you, individual you, to own guns. Not to give them to the government, not to get them from issued from the president, and not from the state either. Not to be stored in some central warehouse. The language says keep and bear. So it wasn't just about hunting. Though it would imply protection of hunting rights because the keep and bear would imply that the gun's in your possession and you get to use it and and if you're going to bear it, obviously, you'd have to keep up practice. Like so many issues, in the light of history, it seems we've been fighting a battle that's not a true one when compared to the historical record. It's not collective versus individual right to bear arms. It's, in its compromise form, an individual right For a collective goal or purpose. Founding Fathers wanted all of us to have guns for the purpose of a well-regulated militia. So should everyone who has a gun now go and form a militia unit with their friends? A well-regulated one? Should they work on their marksmanship every other Tuesday? No, I don't think so. And I don't think the Supreme Court will say so. Times change. The Constitution must be applied to current times. Militias no longer exist. And the ones that do are probably not the well-regulated type. We are a nation of individual gun owners, just as the nation that James Madison described so long ago. There is no conceivable way, therefore, to remove the right of an individual to own a gun and remain a friend to the Bill of Rights. You can, of course, make another amendment. You can change it. And though that's not likely politically today, it certainly could be at some point. But you wouldn't be true to the the amendment as it reads. But in those words, a well-regulated militia, and in the comments of early American founders, there is ground for regulation of guns, for requirements of training, perhaps, and even removal of privileges for some of those who are not fit, could not be part of a well-regulated militia. So if you hold this philosophy of an individual-slash-collective right, Issues of licensing and registration get a little sketchy. Militia units would have been organized. They would have known who their members are who had guns. And so perhaps registration might meet historical approval. Licensing might. But if it gets into the government saying yes or no to the bulk of individuals, I don't think it fits with the Second Amendment language. If you hold the philosophy of an individual-slash-collective right, how do you answer the question, do I have a right to own a bazooka, an assault weapon, a cannon, a howitzer? That one gets a little difficult, too. After all, if you truly take what James Madison said on its face, one of the reasons he argued for the Constitution is that the militia could easily take any national army. There are enough armed people in America that if there was a tyrant in the presidency... The militia, the combined armed people of America, could take the U.S. Army. In actuality, that's probably not the case today. If you take that argument to the hilt, Madison may have wanted you to have everything that a national U.S. Army possibly could have. Tanks, bazookas, howitzers, rocket launching grenades, everything. So can any of that be limited? I think that just goes to a sort of practical law and uh, decisions about what's practical and good for public policy and, and precedent of for, of past cases in circuit courts that upheld gun control laws. But for pure constitutional language, it's difficult to see that even an assault weapon could be banned if it was something that large groups of people had that they were well-organized and trained to use, and that helped them to match what the federal government had so that they could protect against tyranny. So what do we think the Supreme Court will do? In the upcoming court decision, of course, as in most decisions, watch Anthony Kennedy. He is a reasoned, studied individual, and he often has split the line between the justices and the majority and the minority. I suspect that Washington, D.C.'s ban on handguns might be so harsh that it might have some problems going into this case. There are some real interesting divisions. President of the NRA, Wayne LaPierre, said that folks were very divided as to well whether that case should go forward, as the NRA has been doing well in the political realm and didn't want to get into the courts on an issue. The Brady Foundation has has said that, short of a decision totally banning gun control, they might get a victory here. The Bush administration has filed a brief uh, supporting the District of Columbia's right to use gun control. But Dick Cheney, the vice president, as an individual citizen and as the president of the Senate, has filed a brief in opposition with his own administration. Candidate John McCain is also supporting Dick Heller and Dick Cheney. I don't know to what extent the Supreme Court justices will use history as a guide. They normally do in some aspect. On the Second Amendment, The use of history might lead to a very surprising decision. The Supreme Court, at least in modern times, gets to pick and choose the cases that it will hear. If it didn't want to hear the Heller case and didn't want to decide on the Second Amendment, it wouldn't have to. Perhaps the conservative libertarian justices on the court would plan to grant an absolute individual right to bear arms. At the same time, a justice like Anthony Kennedy may be planning to use this opportunity to finally fashion a legal language and precedent to apply to this issue. I would doubt that the Supreme Court decision will be on the originalist side, that is, looking only at the very language of the Constitution and making a ruling. Some of the justices have originalist tendencies, like Antoine Scalia, for instance, although he claims he's not an originalist. Dick Heller says that the Constitution gives him a right to protect himself against violent criminals. But he may be wrong. The truth may be even stranger. The Constitution gives him a right to own a weapon in order to protect himself against the government. That's the most clear intent of the framers in the Second Amendment. How that somewhat unrealistic desire of a group of people consisting of the entire United States, armed and trained, that could at a moment's notice do the right thing if there was a tyrant, how that jives with today's society will be an interesting question for the Supreme Court. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson.